Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. We've been in 1 Peter a couple of weeks, and um, we have been following up after Easter, talking about living the Easter life, and today we're going to be talking about about living uh, the power of the resurrection. Uh, Last Sunday we talked about uh, life after Easter, and in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, uh, we were challenged to live that life, and some of the things that Peter talked about came because of the resurrection. He said, we have a living hope. Uh, We have a new birth. We've been born again, as the choir talked to us about in that anthem. Uh, We have an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil or fade. We've got the protection of our salvation by God. And we have the presence of God in our life no matter what we're going through. God is there with us all the time. So when we look at 1 Peter, we see that that resurrection is so profound that that's that's what everything that we have in our Christian life hinges upon that. In verse 3, Peter talked about that. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So he begins this section talking about that with the resurrection. Then you look over in verse 21. And he says, Through Him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. That's again a reference to the resurrection. So it kind of is a bookend for what he wants to say to us. Last week was talking to us about the promises basically that God has given to us, the things that we are experiencing. Today when we look at verses uh, 13 through 25, we find it's the challenge that he gives to us uh, in three areas of our life. And that is how we conduct ourselves, how we value God, and how we relate to one another. So last week I told you you might want to underline some key words or underline a mark or circle some key phrases. Uh, You might want to do the same thing. And as we read this scripture, see if you could pick out three particular phrases that are so profound about our living uh, in the power of the resurrection. So we're going to begin reading 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever." Now, there are three particular phrases that talk to us about our life and how we live this resurrection life, about how we should, how we should conduct ourselves. He said, be holy. 
The second thing is, is then how we should value God. And he tells us that we should live, in verse 17, in reverent fear of God. And then he tells us in how we should relate to one another, we should love one another deeply. And we find that in verse 22. Sometimes when I work with a passage of Scripture, it takes a, a lot of effort and a lot of struggle to, to just pull to get the message that God has for me out of, that, out of that passage of Scripture. This is one that just literally jumped out, a three-point sermon right there. Uh, that just jumped off the pages and said, preach me. And, and there's three, three powerful phrases about our life. You know, be holy. Uh, live in, in reverent fear of God. And love one another deeply. And I told a 9 o'clock crowd, I said, you know, if we didn't have to just wait through all the rest of this hour of worship and then go to Bible study, you know, we could go to these three points and tell you, there it is, and you go home. I said, but you got to stay. Now, the same thing could be true too, but we need to spend a little bit of time expounding upon these three phrases and, and exactly what Peter says to us is so profound in these three phrases. So let's unpackage these three phrases. First of all, to live in the power of the resurrection is we are to be holy. That's a great challenge. But Peter is just simply quoting that from Leviticus 11.44 where God commands the Israelites to be holy. If we are God's people, if we are God's children, if we are Christ's followers, we should be like God is, and holy is the primary attribute of God. The Bible is full of names and phrases and references to the nature and character of God. We're told that God is spirit, that God is love, that God is merciful, that God is our shepherd, God is our provider, God is our healer. He is the almighty one, and we could go on and on and on and seemingly never exhaust the descriptions of God. But the one that stands out the most, the one that is used the most and in the most powerful ways is to describe God as being holy. God is holy. And I think one of the greatest passages of Scripture that brings that to mind is in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah goes into the temple to worship and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he hears the seraphim repeating that phrase over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, they repeat that three times, holy, 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 not just holy and not holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. Because there is perfection in repeating it three times. And and that is how God is really seen. He he is holy and majestic in who he is. The same scene is there in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8. The creatures there are praising God and saying, day and night, John says, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So God is holy. Now, when we talk about the fact that God is holy and we get the command that we're to be holy, what does it mean to be holy? The basic meaning of the word holy means to be different, to be set apart, to be separate, to be distinct. And God is certainly holy. He, he, is, he is set apart from any other being, any other creation. He is set apart and distinct from any other God, from any other religion. He is certainly holy and distinct. And if we are called to be holy, then our holiness is to be a reflection of the character and the nature of God. Now, Peter tells us to be holy. But beyond that, he tells us how it will affect us in three areas 
of our life, and they are profound. I want you to catch these because they're significant as to how you move towards being holy and, and showing forth holiness in all of your life. First of all, he says, holiness involves your mind. In verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. In other words, you have to decide to be holy. King James translation says, gird up the loins of your mind. And we have to ask today, what in the world does that mean? Well, you have to go back to the biblical time and remember that men wore these long flowing robes and for them to run would be very difficult in that. So what they did was they would take the robes and they would bring them up and they would tie them into their belt and that was called girding up the loins. Today, we we might use the phrase, roll up your shirt sleeves and let's get busy about it. Because holiness involves your mind. You've got the desire to be holy and that begins in your mind. That begins in your thought process, your worldview, how you think about God, how you think about this world and how you're living in this world. So Peter's literally saying, get ready to be holy. Prepare your minds for action. The second thing he says is that holiness involves your will. See, you must practice self-control And that is what Peter says in verse 13. He says, be self-controlled. He said, your will is the part of your total being that determines what you do and what you say. And so Peter is writing to us about the need to exercise self-control when you're tempted to sin and being reminded that we're supposed to be holy. It's your will that allows you to say no to sin and yes to the practice of holiness. You'll also remember in Galatians 5 that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit that's listed. And so we have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life to produce the fruit that's known as self-control so that we have control over our thought process because as we think, so we are. It's from that mind and the thinking process then that we are able to control our thoughts and then control our actions. Then the third thing Peter says is that holiness involves your future. Peter writes in verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. And it's the return of Jesus Christ that is the hope that challenges us all to be found holy. Hasn't there been a time and place in your life that, that you knew you were doing something and you were somewhere that you shouldn't have been as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christ follower? And the thought might have run through your mind, Lord Jesus, please don't come back right now. You know, there were times in my life in college pastor, when, when I wasn't living the way that I knew I was supposed to live, but I had that nagging thought in my mind. You know, God's laid his hand on you. I was fighting my call. I was fighting everything that God wanted to do in my life. But when I would catch myself in those times, I'd realize, you know, this is a bad spot to be in if the Lord would return right now. So I'd say, Jesus, please don't come back right now. Peter says there's a return of Jesus Christ that is your hope. It's the future. Your holiness affects your future. The apostle Paul wrote about the return of Jesus in Titus 2.13. And he said, we are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, it is our hope that in the second coming of Jesus Christ that drives us to want to be holy when he comes back. We want to be found holy when the Lord Jesus returns. 
And then he says, holiness also then involves your conduct. And that's where it really makes sense. That's where it brings it right down to our level of living. The challenge is to be holy in our lifestyle. In verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. When you live in ignorance, he's talking about before you came to know Christ as your Savior. He said, now that you've come to believe in Christ, now that you're a Christ follower, now that you are following after Jesus Christ, then your lifestyle should be different. Holiness means to be distinct, to be different, to be set apart. So holiness involves your conduct. And he says it it, it means that, that others will look at our life and say he or she lives for the glory of a wonderful, holy God. History tells us about Alexander the Great, that he conquered the known world in his 30s. And he sat down and he wept because there was nothing else that he knew to conquer. But there was a period of time in some of his conquests that a soldier, a young soldier was brought to him who was being tried for for, um, uh, desertion in a time of battle. And Alexander supposedly looked at this young soldier and said, what is your name, young man? Very hesitantly, he said, Alexander, sir. And Alexander looked at him in the eye and he said, Soldier, either change your behavior or change your name. We bear the name of Jesus Christ. We're Christians. We're Christ followers. We're called to be holy. We're to be distinct. We're to be different. We're to be set apart from the sinful culture in which we live. So living in the power of the resurrection, first of all, means that we live holy. We're to be holy. Then the second thing that affects our life is how we value God. And Peter says then, you are to live in reverent fear of God. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, the key phrase is reverent fear. What's Peter talking about? What kind of fear is he talking about? I think he's talking about the fear that has us simply in awe of God. But I think there is another fear, and that's, that's what we will talk about. But I just want to say to you, I think, though, We also need to live in fear of God because of who God is, that he is this holy and awesome God. I think somehow we've lost some respect and fear about the awesomeness of God and what he can do and what he will do. And so I think we need to live in that kind of fear about him. But what Peter is talking about is the reverent fear that is based upon love and respect because of who God is and what he has done. See, in Deuteronomy 5.29, God says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. You see, it's, it's the fear of the Lord that's a loving respect that we have God. It's a choice we make to love God and to obey God because of what God has done for us. 
Now, Peter again goes on to give us three reasons why we should choose to love and respect God. He says, first of all, life is short. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. What does he mean by saying we are strangers here? Well, this isn't our home. The Bible tells us that we have citizenship somewhere else. That our citizenship is where? Our citizenship is in heaven. So this isn't our home. Our home is in heaven. That's why oftentimes we would hear people talk about funeral services as the home-going service for somebody because they're going home. But we are aliens and strangers. We, we, are, we are visitors in this world because this isn't our home. But he tells us what fear should do is remind us that this is a short time that we live here compared to eternity. And we should take this short time in which we live in this world to bring glory to God. And we do that by our lifestyle that we live in reverent fear of God, a loving respect for God. And we do so because life is short. The second reason Peter says we do so is because God is our judge. God is our loving Father. God is our Creator. He redeems us through Jesus Christ. He sustains us in all of life. But one day, He's going to be our judge. We're going to stand before Him. I think there are two different judgments. There is a judgment that you certainly do not want to be a part of, and that is the great white throne judgment when all unbelievers who have died are brought back to life. They go before the great white throne judgment of God, and really they already have been judged, and it's just that their sentence is given to them, and they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's for everybody who's lost, who dies without faith in Jesus Christ. But we as Christians, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we also stand before God for judgment. It's not to determine our eternal destiny because that is determined once we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's the judgment where we come before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And we are not judged for uh, whether we are going to spend eternity with him or not. But we're judged on the basis of what we did with the gospel, what we did with our time, our talents, our treasures, what we did to glorify God here. Paul says what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. So God is our judge, and we ought to live in reverent fear of him. And then the third reason, and I think this is the the whole hinge upon which this reverent fear hinges, is that we should have a reverent fear of God because of the cost of our salvation. Peter reminds us of that in verses 18 and 19. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, our heart should be filled with love for God because of the depth of love he had for us in sending his only son, Jesus Christ. 
to die upon the cross for our sins. We were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. When you understand the significance of that, then you should live with a a reverent fear of God. And Peter goes on to say in verses 20 through 21 that this was the plan of God before the creation of the world. That God planned our salvation, He revealed it, and He brought it to us with the faith and the hope that we would love Him with a reverent love. And He did so because He wants us to glorify Him. God loved us and He sent His Son to redeem us, dying in our place for our sins. And because of that, we should love God with a reverent fear. The third thing Peter says then is how we relate to one another if we live this resurrection life. And through the power of the resurrection, he says, we should love one another deeply. Verse 22, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, Peter uses two different words for love. He talks about having a sincere love for your brothers, and he literally uses the word Philadelphia. When you think about Philadelphia, you might think about the football team, the Eagles that won the Super Bowl. You might think about the baseball team, the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm sure they got a hockey team. What is it, maybe Philadelphia Flyers or something? I don't follow hockey. But what he's really talking about, 76ers, they're in the playoffs, basketball team. He's really talking about reminding us that Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. Two words go together for that. The word for love, philos, and the word adelphius for brother gives us the phrase brotherly love. So, first of all, we're to love one another with a brotherly love because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But then when he says love one another deeply from the heart, he uses another word for love, and that's the word agape. That's the kind of love that loves in spite of. It's the love that God had for us. He loved us in spite of our sin, and he sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. It's the kind of love that we should have for each other in the fact that every one of us is still flawed, and we have characteristics that annoy somebody. We still sin, and and we have to be loved in spite of our flaws and our character traits and our, our, and our sins. And that's the kind of way that God loves us in that agape love, in spite of. And then he says to us that we're to love with that agape love deeply from the heart. The Greek literally means passionately. And, and it really describes stretching out. Like a horse running towards the finish line stretches out the neck so that he can be the first across the finish line. And the implication for us is when we love one another deeply, we're really going to be stretching our neck. We're going to be putting our neck out. We're going to be making ourselves vulnerable. You might use that phrase in other ways, you know. Um, 
you do a favor for somebody that really doesn't deserve it, and you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really stretching my neck for you on this one. I'm putting my neck on the chopping block, you know. Uh, you, use, you, you, you serve as a reference for somebody when they're really not deserving of the job for which they're applying. You hire somebody's deadbeat brother-in-law just to do, do your friend a favor, right? You love your mother-in-law because you have to, right? Okay? And you love, the, you love your, your, your wife, your family. You love your husband's family. You do them good deeds. You do them favors. Why? Well, because you have to. But you're literally going out on a limb. You're stretching your neck to do that, right? When we love one another deeply, we make ourselves vulnerable. You will get hurt when you do that. 29 years being here, I can think of the people that I have loved deeply and gone through deep waters of times of trial and afflictions and troubles. And it wasn't long after we walked through those deep waters the thanks I got was they left. When you love deeply, you will be hurt. But you can't stop doing it because we are mandated to do it by God himself. Jesus gave us that commandment in John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Why? He says, because by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, when we love each other with a brotherly love and when we love each other deeply with that agape love, we show the love of God to a lost culture. People will be attracted to a loving church. They will not be attracted to a church that's not filled with love and loving people. So we have to be loving people, loving one another, loving each other's brothers and sisters in Christ, loving each other deeply with agape love. Peter has two conditions on that brotherly love. Our part is obeying the truth. And God's part is sustaining us as we are born again by the imperishable word of God. So, living the power of the resurrected life means three things. Number one, we're holy because God is holy. That's our conduct. Number two, we value God as we live with a reverent fear for God. Basically because of what he's done for us. And the gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we relate to one another with love. We love each other deeply. Because God loves us in spite of our failures, in spite of our faults, in spite of our flaws. He loves us deeply. And we're to love each other so that we show this lost culture the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the challenge to live, to live this life now in the light and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we're awed by the depth of your love for us, by your power, by your holiness, simply the fact that you are the one true, awesome God. And yet you love us because you want a relationship with us and you sent your son to die for us and you command us to love 
You command us to, to be holy, and we're to love you with a reverent fear. Father, through the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, enable us to live the way you want us to live and to reflect your, your love and reveal your character to the culture in which we live. May we so commit our lives to you through Jesus that we do that. And may you receive all the glory and honor that's due your holy name. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.